This is uh, Unite and Heal America with your host, Matt Mattern. I'm joined with uh, guest, Senator Ben Allen, and uh, love to have uh, Senator Allen on the show. Senator has uh, been the author and sponsor of a number of proposals regarding environmental issues that are facing California, and I, I want to focus on those in particular during the show. We've got about a half an hour of the Senator's time. So uh, without further ado, welcome, Senator Allen. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Great to have you on the show. And just wanted to kind of take it from the top, uh, just kind of march down a few of these bills that you're you're working on. SB 54, the Legislative Plastics and Waste Reduction uh, Bill. What? Uh, tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, so this bill deals with the scourge of single-use plastics that are out in our society, most of which are, are ultimately non-recyclable. And it basically says to the producers, who are the folks who have most control over this, look, we got to move you toward more sustainable packaging. Uh, we, want, we want to reduce the amount of plastic waste out there in general, and we also want you to uh, start moving toward truly recyclable plastics or reusable, compostable, biodegradable. Now, why does this matter? It doesn't just matter because it's better for the environment. It also matters uh, because it's better for our consumers in our cities and our in our local governments that are basically tasked with the unenviable job of handling all of our waste. And it's becoming increasingly untenable. Uh, there's more. There's so much more waste now than there was even 10 or 20 years ago because of the amount of single-use plastics that are out there in the waste stream. And uh, it's really. Uh, and by the way, our our we used to just send off a lot of this material overseas. A lot of it was going to China and Asia and elsewhere. And the, and the, the Chinese have basically said, we don't want America's recycling junk anymore. So much of it was contaminated, so little it was truly recyclable. And so it's actually created a, a crisis for our cities. The county of Sacramento just raised the, the trash pickup rates by $10 a month on their, on their ratepayers, on their consumers, simply be, you know, partly because of this problem. And so it's part of the reason why our cities and counties are so passionate about getting this, this bill across the finish line as well. It's all about asking the producers, who are the ones who ultimately have the most control over this system, to move toward more sustainable pack packaging practices. Yeah, there's no doubt that we're just drowning in plastics and uh, they have the seven different types of recyclables, that not, most of which are not really recyclable. And that kind of segues into your SB 343, which is the truth in labeling for recyclable materials. And uh, it's just it's crazy that most of them are not even really recyclable. That's absolutely right. So it's interesting. The rules are so we have some some rules that protect against fraud or, or false claims. So a lot of products are not allowed to say to say recyclable on their on their on their uh, on their product, but they do, and they are allowed to slap the recycling symbol on their product, which sends a signal to most consumers that the item is recyclable. Most people I talk to think that that means you can toss that into the blue bin. Well, unfortunately, so many, in fact, most of the materials that put the, uh, the recycling symbol on their product is not actually recyclable in the end of the day. Um, there are a lot of items that are theoretically recyclable under perfect conditions. Uh, there are a lot of items that, um, that, that, are, that, are, that, are, that are not recyclable, even under perfect conditions, but they put it on there supposedly to encourage people to recycle, even if they can't recycle that item. 
Um, and of course, there are a lot of items that um, that unfortunately are 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 not recycled because there's no market for that for that uh, that particular type of, of plastic. Part of what we're trying to do in, with with SB 54, in fact, is to move the plastic manufacturers toward the ones and the twos, the PET, the stuff that is truly recyclable at the end of the day that will get recycled. So we want to we're basically telling the, cons- the the producers, look, if you are not allowed to say that your item is recyclable under our truth in advertising rules, you shouldn't be allowed to put the recycling symbol on your product because uh, that's just very confusing to consumers and it's, it's leading them down a garden path. Yeah, I mean, it's quite frankly, it's just impossible for the average consumer to figure out the seven different levels of recycling. And uh, I mean, we've never really been trained on that as consumers to make that distinction when we're throwing things into our blue recycling container. That's right. That's right. And a lot of people who are who are very dutifully putting all these items in their blue recycling container. Actually, in some respects, sometimes they're making it worse. I didn't realize, you know, I mean, this comes from personal experience. I get the LA Times every morning. I would open up my paper. The newspaper came in, in, a, in a bag, in a plastic bag that had the recycling symbol on it. So I always dutifully put it into my uh, recycling bin. Turns out, and I've gone to visit recycling centers, those things are the bane of their existence because it's film that gums up the machines that ends up getting needing to make the machines get fixed all the time. Oftentimes it gets, it actually ends up in the paper stacks, which ends up contaminating the paper stacks because it's so flat. It just kind of ends up in there and it's hard to sort out and it actually makes the situation worse. So by, by trying to do the right thing and looking at the recycling symbol and throwing that into the recycling bin, I, I was actually contributing to the problem. And so I want to just prevent that from happening to people in the future. That's a, that's a definite uh, move in the right direction. We've got to take a, a, a lot of steps in that direction because my recycling bin fills up faster than the regular trash bin because there's so many things that are plastic that I'm getting. And I'm trying not to buy that much, but it's almost impossible not to buy it if you go to the store. Exactly. It's, it's a, it, we, we were making it so difficult, so difficult for consumers to do the right thing. And my point is, there actually are some plastics out there that are highly recyclable. And, and by the way, there's also a lot of those same items could be sold using less packaging and could be sold using glass or aluminum, which are very recyclable, especially aluminum. I mean, that can be recycled forever. So the point is, why are we continuing to, uh, to, to package things in, in these non-recyclable plastics when there are better alternatives out there that actually can be recycled? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, so I appreciate your work on on those uh, issues. Uh, why don't we why don't we switch to AB six forty six, which was the California Buy Recycled Act, and uh, tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, so this is a bill um, that is is sponsored by a good friend and colleague, it's Steve Bennett's bill, right? And so this is a bill that seeks to basically put the state's money where its mouth is. Look, you know, if if we're if we're telling everyone you ought to be you know doing a better job. Uh, with regards to to, to, to to recycled materials, we ought to be doing more to actually, as we do our procurement as a state, we should be procuring items that are uh, that are that are used made out of recycled content that are uh, you know that, that that do waste reduction that that are recyclable, reusable, biodegradable, etc. So it's about the state putting its own money where its mouth is. And I think it's a good first step towards helping the industries that are at the forefront of those technologies and giving them some support. And it encourages those build businesses to get larger and, and get more customers and so on and so forth. 
So we should be encouraging those businesses because those are the wave of the future. Yep. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the truth of the matter is one of the reasons why we had so many groups of industry business groups uh, not oppose our bill. I mean, we actually worked very closely with lots and lots of businesses as we were promoting SB 54 last year, and we will continue to this year. But there's actually a lot of businesses that have a lot to gain, right? The businesses that have done the R&D, that have done the work, that have actually put in the time to, to, to package their products or produce products that are packaged in more environmentally friendly materials. They're the ones who stand the most to gain. And so there's tons of really great California homegrown businesses that, uh, that, 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 that are doing good work in this space, and they ought to be rewarded for it. Yeah, that's an excellent idea is that we will be at the forefront of this new industry because that has got to be the way of the future is the reduction of plastic usage because it's polluting our oceans. I just saw a program saying that we're ingesting a credit card worth size of plastic as individuals every day. That's yeah, it's disgusting. I know. I know. And I was just at a really depressing uh, event, uh, you know, hearing just the other day on microplastics that showed that something like four out of five human placentas have very high plastic levels. I mean, so this is getting into our babies. This is getting into our water stream. It's getting into our blood. It's I mean, I don't we don't even know what damage we're doing to our to our own health. Uh, you know, I think I think future generations are going to curse us for not taking more bold action. Absolutely. I mean, because it's the solution is eminently there. It's not something we can't do. We did it for thousands of years. We live without plastic. So it, it can't that's be. Ab- that's absolutely true. And by the way, what we're we're not even I mean, we're you know, the things like things, things like styrofoam. Right. I mean, you can you can you can you can replace that product with a perfectly environmental, with a fully biodegradable foam. I mean, all, all you're trying to do is just protect your TV from getting dinged on the way from Best Buy to your house. There are other alternatives out there, and we just ought to be using them instead of, of this dangerous fossil fuel, non-recyclable product. Absolutely. Well, uh, you're listening to Senator Ben Allen, and we're talking about environmental legislation that he is working on here You can find out more by uh, visiting our website and uh, checking out KABC 790 at Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern. We'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to KABC 790, Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern. My guest, Senator Ben Allen. Senator, uh, just wanted to talk to you about AB 802, which is the microfiber filtration in state and commercial facilities. Tell us a little bit about that. Long title. Yeah, so this is Richard Bloom's bill, uh, my colleague. I'm a, I'm, I'm a supporter of the bill. Uh, but basically, so this, is, this has to do with microfibers. So in order to reduce the leakage of microfibers into our natural environment, and this is happening on, on a massive scale, this bill aims to identify the best available control technology to, 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 for microfiber filtration. And then it requires state agencies as well as commercial and industrial facilities to start adopting that, that technology. So the idea is that by putting simple filters on uh, a lot of of of, um, of of items, right, we can we can stop the the, um, the the we can dramatically reduce the microfibers that are that are ending up in our environment uh, just through putting in, in filters. So it's not very high cost, but it can really dramatically reduce the the microfiber pollution that's going out into our water streams. And uh, when you're talking the microfibers, would that include the plastics and, and what else? 
Microfibers are are typically plastic. I mean, it, it is, it, the, but they're they're incredibly small. So when you talk about all that plastic that ends up in your body, right? The credit card worth of plastic that ends up in your body, it's typically it's microplastic. It's microfibers and microplastics. They're so small, they're hard to um, they're really hard to extract from water sources once they're there, and they end, that that's what actually ends up in our bodies and, and, and starts impacting public health. So how soon? Uh... Can we get these five uh, these filtration systems implemented into our our water supplies uh, here in California? Yeah, that's a great question. So this is not my bill. Uh, so I'm going to have to refer you over. In fact, maybe your next interview you can do with Richard Bloom, and he can talk to you. By the way, Richard, who is my state assembly member, has been a great champion on the question of microplastics. I mean, he, you know, microbeads. He was the one who who transitioned um, a lot of those uh, healthcare hair care. And, and beauty care products away from micro from 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 plastic microbeads toward natural um, exfoliants. Uh, so I don't know exactly what the timeline is. Honestly, I'm, I'm supporting the bill, but um, uh, but it's it's his bill, so I'm, I'm not I'm not up on the details. Sure, about the timeline at least. Yeah, it's uh, it kind of goes to the issue that uh, to be an informed citizen in today's day and age is a really full time job because there's just so much information that uh, floods through the system and even somebody who's uh, in the system and is very educated on these issues it's challenging for you i see and it's uh, certainly challenging for me to uh, to stay up on on top of these issues so it is such a yeah i know i'll tell you i mean and, and i gotta tell you ultimately legislature especially it's it's a team effort right i mean we're really ultimately it's about Finding partners in the legislature, fellow senators and assembly members who who you trust and you believe in and you, and you, and you trust because we're working on. I mean, every single day, Matt, I'm working on you wouldn't be believe the number of issues we get to work. We, we work on every day from vaccines to parks to insurance to transportation finance to school reopening to you know environmental challenges. I mean, every single day I'm, I've, I, we, we literally work on every issue that the state works on, which is nearly nearly every aspect of life. So. So it's it, ultimately a lot of this job involves finding really good partners that you can work with. And, and you know, assembly members Bennett and Bloom and many others have been great partners in this work. Yeah, well, it's, it's a challenging job uh, managing uh, California's economy, which is the fifth largest economy in the world. So it's uh, it's important work. So there's another uh, bill that uh, you're also sponsoring. It's AB 1276 to reduce unnecessary food service where can you tell us a little bit about that one yeah this is a this is actually pretty this bill is pretty easy to, to understand and this is wendy carrillo's bill another wonderful member from los angeles assembly member so so the idea here is that it um right now we have this plastic straws upon request bill so you can get a plastic straw if you want it but it's upon request the same idea is that with other single-use food accessories um and then like third-party delivery platforms you know, that you have, you, you should request it. Right. So if, so for example, you know, this is a pandemic right now where a lot of us are getting takeout, the, the food's coming to our homes where we have cutlery, where we have plates, where we have dishes. And yet almost always they throw two or three or four little uh, uh, plastic where, uh, uh, you know, uh, plastic where packages in our, in our bags. When, when, now I don't know about you, but I don't, I, when, if I'm at home, I don't want to use the plastic where I want to use my, 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 my silverware. And so the idea is that, that, that um, companies should, it should be upon request. So right. yes, 
absolutely. If you're going to go to a picnic at the park and you want to ask for, for some plasticware, fine, no problem. But it shouldn't just be thrown in there uh, by rote, um, especially given the fact that so many people are eating um, their meals you know, at home or at the, you know, somewhere where they have access to cutlery. Because it's, yeah. it's just very wasteful. Yeah, and we're talking about probably tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions or billions of uh, utensils because the state of California is 40 million people. And if, if you do that 10 times a year, that's 400 million sets of uh, plasticware. It's such a waste. And, you know, and there are people who collect drawers full of this stuff, you know, for, for, the, you know, for, the, for, the, one, for the one chance that they'll have to, um, you know, to, to maybe use it. Uh, but then in addition, um, there's just tons of people who just toss it right into the trash without ever using it at all. Uh, right. And so it, it's, just, it's just very wasteful. I mean, so... Well, another one that uh, you've sponsored is AB 1371, the plastic film and e-commerce, the peanuts and all that uh, type of stuff. Um, what else is covered in that other than the peanuts that they throw in the e-commerce uh, material? That yeah, mailers, void fill. Um, so, so, I mean, ultimately, it's, it's, about, it's about these plastic films that are very, I mean, it, it's kind of like I was talking about with the, with the LA Times insert. Um, you know, the truth of the matter is, and Amazon knows this. I mean, Amazon is slowly transitioning toward, um, you know, for example, the, 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 there's, you can put it paper envelope. So many things. I mean, I get these books that are covered in plastic wrap. And I mean, when I'm not talking about ancient, I'm not talking about like antique books. I'm talking about a, just a used book that's just, it's almost as though they, they delivered a baby in it. I mean, it, it, it's so over the top, the kind of packaging they put to protect a book that really, in the end of the day, doesn't need anything but a, a basic cardboard envelope. And so um, the idea is that, that we're going to phase out the use of plastic films, mailers, void fill, polystyrene peanuts in e-commerce. And by the way, let me just remind folks that there is perfectly usable and perfectly, uh, perfectly uh, 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 workable um, peanuts, right, that, that, are, that, are, but that, are, that are degradable, right, that, that, are, that are natural, um, that, you know, made out of, of, of cornstarch, for example, that do the trick, they'll, they'll protect your your item just as just as well as polystyrene, but if you toss it into a you know into a river, it'll biodegrade within a few days. That's great. Simple fixes like that to make a big difference because it's it's sickening how much uh, packaging Amazon sends uh, items like you said, and it's just such a waste. But uh, referring you to AB eight eight eight, which is a recycling export reform. Uh, that that caught my eye as an important uh, piece of legislation. Yes, this bill is not, so. Once again, another bill by one of my assembly colleagues, and, and the, the last bill I mentioned, by the way, the one on the peanuts was was uh, Laura Friedman, who's also from LA. This bill is by um, Lorena Gonzalez, who's from you, you mean eight eight one, right? Eight eighty one. Oh, eight eighty one. Sorry. Yeah. This, 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 so this is Lorena's bill. So so basically, up until now, a lot of jurisdictions have been basically exporting mixed plastic waste outside of the state or outside of the country and the stuff gets it gets it gets landfilled it gets burned it gets dumped or otherwise improperly managed and 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 the idea is is that that we shouldn't we shouldn't allow you know uh, folks to to meet their their recycling or diversion requirements if that's what's happening um and and it's it's a it's basically a a major gap in the system right now um you know the the, the jurisdictions have been sending this stuff out closing their eyes and ears and saying, oh, I, I think it's getting recycled. And it's, of course, not. This was precisely what was happening with Asia, by the way. A lot of our stuff was getting sent off to Asia 
they were saying, yeah, yeah, it's getting recycled. Well, once you actually study the, the chain, it's ending up being burned in small villages. It's ending up in enormous trash pits. And yet, and yet the, the, the jurisdictions that were sending these materials off were getting recycling credit for, for these, these materials that were not being recycled. They were not being properly disposed of. And so this is, this is you know, going to put some accountability into the system. That is very important because I saw a little expose about that and burning this trash in Thailand and it's just polluting these poor people's, uh, you know, air and it's just their water. And, you know, for us to ship a, ship our problems off like that is is really um, unconscionable, quite unconscionable. frankly. Unconscionable. Unconscionable. That's a great but, way. Uh, I wanted to uh, just pivot before I let you go to talk about the homelessness issue and uh, a bill that we had proposed, which was a homeless stipend to give homeowners who take in homeless people uh, $1,000 a month to help uh, reduce our homelessness crisis. And part uh, the it's because we have a bit of a housing shortage here. I, I read as many as 3.3 million units. We are short of what we should have in supply, and that's caused our rent prices to go up by probably double in the last 10 years. And, uh, and then we have this homelessness. Right yeah. Yeah. Um, wanted to get your take on that and get your support to, to see if we can help move this forward. Well, I think it's a really cool idea. I mean, to be honest, it, it was actually, I, I, you know, it was presented to a group of L.A. legislators. And I, I, I guess we were both hoping that one of my colleagues would take it up as a bill. They, they worked with the Legislative Council to get the language together. And, and, and so, you know, I, I, I guess what, what you and I have talked about is, is you know, getting this into getting this into a package that we can present to the governor, maybe try to see if we can get it into the budget process. Um, one of the one of the challenges we have to think about here is how this type of arrangement goes at a more um, specialized professional level. So, you know, even when the state pays for professional managers and housing and apartments for unhoused individuals, they don't always agree to go into this housing agreement or they don't follow the requirements to be there. Um, so, you know, so so but but that being said, uh, I think it's a good idea. Um, of course. It's not always as simple as just getting a homeless person into into housing. I mean, there, and one of the problems we find is when we get homeless people into into shelters or into some of the supportive housing, they need wraparound services, they need social services, they need mental health services. They, you know, they, they you know, we're oftentimes there are some people who literally just need a roof over their head to get you know get back on track. But there's a lot of people in our homeless community who have serious mental health challenges and other challenges associated with getting themselves back on their feet. So we have to think about all those factors and forces too. Right, definitely wraparound services are absolutely necessary for a lot of the homeless population. And, and uh, one of the organizations we've worked with is called SHARE and they've housed like 395 people this last year. And and they have a, a counselor that works with with the homeless persons that are, are housed through their program which has worked out really well. And on the average, uh, within a year, those persons are back in, in the, on their feet and, and housed in kind of uh, regular circumstances. So and what did they do? Like, what is, what is, what's share special sauce? Like, what are they, what, what sort of services do they provide that make the difference for these folks? I think it's a combination of job services and getting them in touch with, 
mental health care professionals and, you know, drug and alcohol counseling and, and all the rest and just kind of shepherding, having somebody there for the, the person so that so they can help direct them. And, and, and as we all know, if you don't have family support, having that extra person there to say, hey, let's go here, you can do this. And, and they know the system to get them the help they need to, to relaunch. Yep. Yep. No, I, well, that, that's what, that, that, that certainly conforms with my understanding, right? That ultimately it's about, you have to have a little bit of scaffolding. You have to provide an additional layer of supports, but, but if, you know, especially, especially right now where you have a lot of people because of the pandemic who have fallen into homelessness, but they haven't been homeless for too long. And, 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 you know, for folks who haven't fallen into homelessness because of very severe mental health or addiction issues, those folks, I think, are, are most ready to be helped by a program like you're talking about. And so, um, I, anyway, I, I like the idea, uh, uh, and I'm going to go back and see, you know, what sort of progress it's been making through the legislative conversation so far. And, and let's work together to see if we can, you know, amplify it and, and get it written up and get it you know, in front of the governor and some of the legislative leadership and see where we can go with it. I uh, greatly appreciate your help there, Senator, and uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. You've been listening to Senator Ben Allen, and it's KBC 790, Unite and Heal America with Matt Matter, and we'll be back in just a minute. This is Unite and Heal America with Matt Matter. My guest is Shekha Chakravate, and uh, she is a risk and behavioral scientist on climate change. And uh, really happy to have you on the show. Looking forward to talking about uh, what the work that you're doing. You're back in uh, D.C. and um, welcome. Thank you. Looking forward to this. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, what brought you to this issue of climate change. So it's one of those things that once you know what's going on, you can't look back. And this was never really my plan. I studied behavioral science and I was actually applying it uh, during my postdoctorate to understanding how to improve patient outcomes. So looking at why patients don't take their prescription drugs in accordance to their doctor's um, instructions and trying to understand that behavior and how to improve upon behavior. So it would be better outcomes for the patient and then society because ultimately individual decision-making, and this is key, this is true for climate change, individual decision-making actually impacts society more broadly. And so while you would think this is somebody's personal choice or decision as to whether to take a medicine or whether to consume energy in a certain way, that's actually not the case. We are really all connected and we live part of a collaborative ecosystem. And so I was introduced to climate change during my postdoc, um, actually at a conference, somebody else was talking about it. And I was like, is this actually true? And we're talking about 10 years ago. So not, not that long ago. You know, I, I feel that, uh, exactly what you're saying it's uh we've known this for a long time exxon back in the 80s did a study where they projected what the amounts of carbon per you know per million or whatever i can't remember the scientific uh terminology but parts per billion and uh they projected it and they were like dead on it's unfortunate we had to wait till it got to this point we are locked in to 1.5 degrees warming no matter what and the Paris Accord said that that should be what we max out at at the end of this century. But we're actually on the trajectory to reach it by mid-century. So we're, not only are we hitting what we should be maxing out at uh, 50 years before, we are. what does that mean for where we'll be at the end of the century? 
we're like still on a trajectory where we are going off a cliff as a global society. And it doesn't mean that humankind is going to cease to exist, but it does mean that there's going to be widespread suffering. So now that we know that, how much of that suffering are we willing to accept? And that's something we have to contend with. And I say that not to scare people, but as a behavioral scientist, the reason that it's important to know what we're actually facing is because that's how you actually get people's attention. It's a saturated information landscape out there. People are being hit with stories around so many different things and major issues that deserve attention, like gun homicides and um, other things, COVID-19. So where does climate change kind of fit into this information environment? Well, we have to get people's attention by calling it what it is. It's a crisis. It's an emergency. And scaring people is acceptable because it's actually aligned to the reality of the risks that we're facing with climate. But then it's really important that we come up with solutions, that we provide hope and positive action steps forward because we can overcome this. And that's really important to remember. I think one of the big challenges is how to communicate this message to a society that many parts of it are skeptical of the information and skeptical of science and skeptical of uh, what they perceive as it coming from the left as opposed to this just being accurate information. Uh, as somebody who uh, has been a registered Republican for the last uh, 30 plus years, I mean, the Republicans used to be uh, pretty solid on, on environmental issues. And over the last 30 years, that's kind of dissipated uh, pretty substantially. And, and now with President Trump was or former President Trump, uh, fortunately, uh, he, you know, he completely called it a hoax. And, and a lot of people, 70 some million people voted for that. Uh, not completely. I don't believe every seven, every one of the 70 million people thought that climate change is a hoax, but, but still there, there was a lot of communication that downplayed the risk of climate change. Yeah. And that is so dangerous because it just plays into this polarization that we're seeing in the U S it is, these things need to be disentangled. And it's wild to me, it's not because I study it, but it's still wild that I have to study it. The fact that whether or not somebody is willing to wear a mask, whether or not they believe in climate change, uh, whether or not they think infectious disease is a real threat, you can, based on that, uh, figure out where they fall on the political spectrum. And that should not be the case. The fact that these identities or these positions are so entangled, but that's what it is because we're tribal by nature. And we're born with a blueprint. This is the sociologist in me or the interested sociologist in me. We're born with a blueprint of really needing to belong to a group. And it's it's fine because it's worked for us since the dawn of our species. It's actually been a very good survival mechanism. It's been very good for human evolution. It's allowed us to set up societies and to create communities and um, come up with these really incredible advances in science and technology and human ingenuity. And but it's brought us here to this really complex interconnected landscape that our brains aren't really wired to understand. And we get overwhelmed by that kind of information because our brains still look more like our ancestors, those who set up these societies thousands of years ago versus the supercomputers that we actually need uh, to look, resemble more closely to be able to understand just how complex some of these risks are. And what we do when we are faced with these kinds of risks is rather than take the time to really interpret what that means, we rather we kind of fall back into what is a what it, our innate wiring, how our brains work, but we fall into kind of the group identity. And if it means it's easier to kind of take a position on climate because, well, I'm a registered Republican and that's what my group or my tribe is doing, I'm going to do that. So that's a challenge that that's what I do daily. In fact, as I communicate to the public, 
um, the work that I do with the group We Don't Have Time based out of Sweden, Stockholm, sorry, Stockholm, Sweden, and the work that I do in advising science and technology policy. We really need to lead with information that is relevant for people that takes away any sort of barrier resistance because of their um, their identity. Well, that's a, it is a challenge and something that I faced when I was out there on the campaign trail uh, to to discuss these issues. And I mean, I, I just found it just stunning to me that people who are intelligent people were taking positions that were contrary to the available science. And uh, and uh, that's just a real tragedy because we have to act, like you said, we don't have time and we need to act now. So just kind of pivoting a little bit to some of the other work that you're doing on a policy basis and, and what do you think are the, the critical policy changes that the U.S. and uh, the world should be making in the next five, ten years? Yeah, or, that's a, that's right a great now. question. That's a great question, because ultimately we need individuals to get the best information possible. We need to lead with the science and the facts, but we need to um, recognize that individual behavioral changes, while we need to shift how we could think about energy and how we interact with the environment and how we consume, we need to do broadly shift that and make that a persistent behavioral change. Um, but ultimately, we really need multilateral efforts at the at the highest levels of governance to address some of the overhauls in across sectors to really address the warming trajectory that we're on. And, you know, Obama started it with the clean power plan, um, but he was using deterrence measures. So it was regulating dirty, dirty energy. Um, then we saw a pivot from that when Trump came into power and he removed all of the regulations that Obama had put in place on coal, oil and gas. And, uh, had Trump stayed in power another four years, some of those those lifting of regulations during the Obama era would have gone into effect in a way that would have been really problematic for the U.S. in terms of the nationally determined contributions to the Paris Accords and the amount of emissions we would be releasing. It would have been a disaster. We would not even come close to meeting our um, our contributions that we have we promised when we initially signed the Paris Accords during Obama. But thank goodness he wasn't here for another four years, and instead Biden's come in. And what Biden's done differently is rather than do the regulations on dirty energy, he is instead providing the carrot over the stick. And so it's really just energizing renewable energy sector in a way that we haven't seen. And we're talking about $3 trillion following the most recent stimulus package that came out that is really being geared towards um, meeting this really ambitious goal of decarbonizing the electricity system in the United States by 2035. That would lead us to net neutral by 2050. Now that is so key because we have to domestically do what we say we're going to do when we're at that global stage, when we're interacting with other world leaders, because we need them to also do the similar thing. So we can't come across as hypocrites. And for the last four years during Trump, we really did. It was very embarrassing. Well, uh, you're listening to Unite and Heal America. My guest, Dr. Shutta. Chakarate, and uh, we'll be back in one minute. Uh, thank you, KBC 790, Unite and Heal America. You're back with Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Matter, KBC 790. My guest again, Dr. Shetta Chakrabate, a risk and behavioral scientist on climate change. We're talking about the changes that uh, President Biden is planning to make and uh, what are some of the 
the additional changes that you see coming down the pike and, and why are they important? Yeah, he's done, he's done incredible things with his executive orders already. He uh, an, put a moratorium on the Keystone Pipeline. And just to spend a second on that, so union workers were very disappointed because of jobs lost there. But the $3 trillion plan, which is rolling out, is going to potentially allow for way more jobs to be created and in industries that really will advance the U.S.'s interest in becoming net neutral by 2050. And again, that is really critical to have that going on at home so that the case can be made at a, at a multilateral level that other countries need to do the same. That's really going to be important. And he's, do, he's doing everything pretty quickly in these first critical 100 days of making that happen by appointing cabinet-level positions with people that get it and making sure that there's cross-communication and collaboration across agencies where historically we wouldn't have seen that necessarily. So Department of Transportation has Pete Buttigieg heading it up now, and we're talking about electrifying the, um, <laughs> the transport sector. So that's really important that that relationship exists with Department of Energy, for example. So uh, power sources for that sort of electrification can occur. We can't do one without the other. So this collaboration is one example of how Biden is really taking significant steps in action. He also saw that environmental justice and correcting for historic environmental racism, the historic wrongs like redlining of neighborhoods resulting in pollution for specific communities that have been historically disenfranchised, primarily black and brown communities, that's being addressed. The Secretary of the Interior is the first indigenous woman that has ever had a position of that, that level, Deborah Holland. And so the, the appointments are great. The efforts that are underway in the first 100 days are really critical. And I think we're going to see with this bill coming out um, some real traction being made towards America putting their, putting their money where their mouth is. We can't just demand everybody, you know, address climate change if we're not doing it at home. So it's been, it's been good to see what's happening so far. Well, what uh, I've seen also is in the market, the market has responded to these efforts and you see alternative energy companies have rallied in the market, creating billions of dollars in additional cap market capitalization for many of these com companies in the hydrogen sector. I've been driving a hydrogen car for the last three years and you can only drive those in California because there isn't a, a network of those stations to fill uh, refill hydrogen into the uh, vehicles, and, and we really need to roll that out. And it wouldn't be that expensive, um, uh, probably a few billion dollars to roll out a hydrogen network across the country, and then that is truly the cleanest fuel, much cleaner than electrified vehicles because you don't have the battery waste. Uh, do you see any action on that front? I'm a proponent of clean energy and whatever needs to get us there to a fully renewable portfolio, including hydrogen, including nuclear. So it definitely has the role to play. Um, we really just need to take our take our reliance off fossil fuels. If we don't include nuclear and hydrogen in that portfolio, then the default for not just a lot of places in the U.S., but around the world will be to fossil fuels. And that's just something we cannot afford. And so I'm curious to see to what extent that will all be included in to um, the loans programs office, for example, within the Department of Energy is going to be looking closely at hydrogen and nuclear. And there's a lot of scope for innovation um, in, in maybe, not, maybe not renewable electricity like nuclear, but it doesn't mean that there isn't uh, a lot of potential for 
new, even better technologies around, let's say, small modular reactors going forward. I think whatever, whatever gets us to the priority of getting to net neutral by 2050, we need to have as part of the, as part of, as playing a critical role. Well, I think the government should partner with the car companies because uh, Toyota and Honda have have rolled out these hydrogen cars, and there are other there are ten or fifteen other car companies that uh, are planning to use that technology. But I think they need the support of the government to roll out the stations in order to create the network where they feel comfortable. Hey, if we produce these cars, there's going to be a market for their use. And uh, we certainly have subsidized the oil industry over the last hundred years. It seems reasonable that we give the hydrogen industry a modest subsidy. And as you said, it will kick off uh, millions of new jobs in that sector because there are a lot of support uh, industries that are necessary to create a cleaner economy. Yeah, I love what you're saying. I work with um, Top Tier Impact. It is a global network of, of uh, investors. And it's a, it's a membership subscription network. And so what we do is we have invitation-only conferences where we uh, look, look at all of these potential innovations and sectors, and we bring together and mobilize investors who individually can make an impact, but collaboratively, we're talking about a lot of capital. And so we just hosted one of these, um, and I have an op-ed out in the Hill with the outcomes of this conference, but we just hosted one on the role of nuclear energy in reaching net zero, and we actually have hydrogen coming up too. So... I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the global consensus is in terms of the science and where the opportunities are with uh, technology capital being inserted in. That's where it could be a game changer. Absolutely. And, and they've, uh, they've advanced the technology substantially in the last uh, 10 plus years as more money has come into the, to the field. And naturally, if more is invested, the technology will move forward even more. Um, so look forward to that. I, I wanted to pivot a little bit to your your work uh, uh, with the UN Partnership and Earth Day, as well as the app that you have uh, for climate change. Uh, so maybe you can talk a little bit about those three things. Yeah, it's an exciting time because this is we're we're getting close to Earth Day, April twenty second, and last year was um, Earth Day's fiftieth anniversary. Again, Earth Day started when it was very clear that we needed to be more respectful with how we engage with the environment. 50, year, 50 plus years ago at this point. And now we're finally at the mark where it's, it's that unfortunate, I told you so, but we can still solve this. So that's, uh, let's get people's attention. This is, it's absolutely critical that we come together um, as a global populace, regardless of who you are and what you do. You have a stake in getting this planet off the warming trajectory that it's on. And the way to do that, we wanna make it easier for people is there's a free tool, it's called We Don't Have Time, it's an app, it's, it's uh, very easy to use and free to download. Please take a look at it. What it allows you to do, and again, it doesn't matter if you don't work in the climate change space, um, as a concerned individual about your family, your community of the future, it's worthwhile to just get engaged and to see who is um, doing what in terms of changing operations so that business, and not, not even just business, but um, organizations, are, are practicing what we, practicing their operations that are aligned to the science, that are aligned to the data. That's what we're holding organizations accountable on this app, and we need the public to join in this effort. And if there's ideas and campaigns that are created virtually, they end up having real life impact. And so we encourage you to join, 
this app and get engaged, get involved. Earth Day is coming up. There's incredible programming that the We Don't Have Time organization that I belong to that offers this free tool, this free app called the We Don't Have Time app. Uh, we're partnering with Earth Day this year. And then we are also going to have a presence at COP26, the UN's um, sixth anniversary from the signing of the Paris Accords. And it might be virtual this year. We're still figuring it out, but it's actually meant to be in Glasgow in Scotland. So keep it, keep an ear out for that. There's plenty that you can do to get really engaged and play your role as a stakeholder in the environment. Well, we only have one earth and we need to take care of it. This has got to be our top priority. Everybody individually and collectively, this is what we need to be focusing on. And uh, that's really what brought me back or brought me into the private or from the private sphere into the public sphere, because I believe that the environment is our number one issue. We need to focus on it. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Shakta Chakravarti. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. This is Matt Mattern, ABC 790, Unite and Heal America. We look forward to having you back next week. Till then. 